Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, the editor of the New Books Network. The interview that you're about to hear was conducted by Jenny Atia, and it was first published on her wonderful show, ThoughtCast. I think you'll enjoy it, and I hope that you visit ThoughtCast today at www.thoughtcast.org. You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm in the office of Helen Vendler, the distinguished poetry critic and A. Kingsley Porter University professor at Harvard. Helen, you've just published a new book on Emily Dickinson, which contains 150 of her poems accompanied by your commentary. Would you agree that, despite all of the scholarly attention that Dickinson has received of late, she is and remains an enigma? Yes, in that she appeared at all. There weren't many women writing at that level of competence, and the ones she admired, among them George Eliot and uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, were surpassed by her. That the American woman lyric poet should go beyond the hundreds of years of tradition of English poetry and establish a new paradigm is in itself enigmatic. People refer to her as the New England mystic, Where is the mystic in Emily Dickinson? Well, our current understanding of the word basically ties it to a neurological disturbance, so I wouldn't call her a mystic. She is a very blasphemous poet. She was brought up, presumably, as a Christian. The family had prayers every morning, and she refused to accept Jesus as her Savior. So mystics are usually found or are described to be in religious contexts, and she was not in a religious context. So that wouldn't be the word I would like to apply to her. And yet it's such a famous term for her. Well, I think partly because people were trying to bring her into the Christian fold, and they didn't quite know how to do that. And that was a kind of all-purpose, rather vague word in which they could intimate that she was religious, even though speaking of the right hand of God, she says, that hand is amputated now. You can hardly <laughs> be more non-mystical than that. But it's interesting, because there's been a desire, in a way, to tamp her down. Yes. She scares people. Yes, I think probably most intellectuals scare most non-intellectuals anyway, because they tend to be thinking outside the box, as we say these days. Everyone thought Emerson and Thoreau were odd at the time. Why was Emerson resigning his pulpit? Why was Thoreau living on the banks of Walden and not having a paying job? There's something about the life lived on a highly individual plane that puts other people off because it seems both peculiar and subversive. But you didn't feel that way about Emily Dickinson's work, I assume. You discovered it when you were about 13 and memorized some of the more famous poems, which I believe have lingered with you all these years. They have, but I've learned them in the bad old versions. Her family censored her considerably, along with her editor. When they were putting out the 
poems for the first time in 1890, they didn't want to scare people. And so they emended them, rewrote them, regularized the rhythm, changed her dashes to conventional punctuation, and made her in every sense milder than she was. Nonetheless, 13 is an interesting age to meet Dickinson, even if she was controlled. Well, yes, and I met her in anthologies, too, which left out the more macabre of her poems. She has a wonderful poem that I didn't know at the time, for instance, at all, where she talks about her life having, in effect, come to an end when her summer goes away and she has to live as the bride of winter instead of as the bride of summer. And it ends up with winter to abide. Then she addresses winter directly. Go manacle your icicle to your tropic bride. (laughs) Just rhyming manacle and icicle and imagining winter coming along and manacling his icicle to his tropic bride is a scary way to end a poem. That's where the poem ends. So it was certainly not the real Dickinson I came across. It was the denatured Dickinson of I like to see it lap the miles or I never saw a moor, I never saw the sea. Those were the conventional poems that were offered to a general public. Hmm. Helen Vendler, when I ask you to choose a poem to discuss that's haunted you, that you think is important and meaningful, you chose the poem titled I Cannot Live With You. Would you read the first few stanzas? Okay. I cannot live with you. It would be life. And life is over there, behind the shelf the sexton keeps the key to, putting up our life, his porcelain, like a cup discarded of the housewife, quaint or broke. A newer Sevres pleases, old ones crack. I could not die with you, for one must wait to shut the other's gaze down. You could not. And I, could I stand by and see you freeze without my right of frost, death's privilege? Nor could I rise with you, because your face would put out Jesus, that new grace glow plain and foreign on my homesick eye, except that you then he shone closer by. Hmm. Emily Dickinson, one of the facts that's most used and abused about her is that she sought out a solitary life. This is a poem about a particular individual, but do you think it reflects her preference for living apart? No one knows. She never said that she chose a solitary life as such, On the contrary, she has many poems of disappointed love and despair at isolation. So I wouldn't say she chose it, but Adrienne Rich suggested, if I remember correctly, that she may have seen it happening to her and not objected or not done anything to counteract it. More recently, Lyndall Gordon has suggested that the illness to which Dickinson frequently refers might be epilepsy, which might account for her losing consciousness in some poems, feeling a cleaving in her brain in others. That can't be definitely proved either, but it might explain why she did not want to be out in public if she was subject to petit or grand mal. Um, We won't know. 
She was lucky, I think, as Adrian Rich also said, in that by staying in the house, she was exempt from all the usual duties of single women, sitting by the bedsides of the dying, taking care of the children of others, doing general good works in the community, though no one could get at her, you might say, while she remained in her father's house. And they gave her the privacy she needed. It was known that she wrote poems, and occasionally even she read them to her brother and sister-in-law as she played the piano, too, in their house across the, the lawn. I don't want to make the mistake of assuming that the I in this poem is Emily. However, I sense that she turned inward for her inspiration. Mm-hmm. She certainly wasn't roving around town. So with this in mind, she's saying, I cannot live with you. But perhaps she's saying, I cannot, when really she will not live with you? It would be possible to see at least the first line in that way. But since she ascribes agency to someone else, that the sexton, who is a stand-in for God, the religious keeper of the church, has put the possibility of their joint life aside, the way a housewife would discard some piece of china, strikes me that she's not taking responsibility for the state of affairs herself, and she is ascribing it to God. Yes, and that powerlessness surprises me in this poem, but perhaps, again... I don't want to read in too much and assume the I is Emily Dickinson. I never mind assuming the lyric poet is the person who wrote. There's always an adjustment to the life situation because it's being turned into a work of art, just as a portrait painter might adjust. Think of what Picasso did to the portraits of his wives. The faces are very much adjusted, to say the least, but still he was using his wife as a model. Uh, Here... It seems to me she gives certain specificities. You served heaven, you know, or sought to. I could not. That puts the religious difference between them squarely as the cause of their separation. And I'm perfectly willing to believe that that's the case. What about this section, Helen? I could not die with you, for one must wait to shut the other's gaze down. You could not. You could not. Is that because he will not, doesn't want to? They're far separated in space, according to the end of the poem. In point of fact, people generally, I think, have assumed that this had to do with the Reverend Charles Wadsworth, whose family she continued to correspond with long after he had died. But he was translated to a church in San Francisco, and it was clear when he left she would never see him again so that he would not be by when she was dying and she wouldn't be by when he was dying. So when she says we must meet apart, that's a permanent condition, clearly, since she talks about despair at the end, too, so no no hope of ever seeing the person again. Let's finish the rest of the poem. All right, we go into another set of alternatives. After I can't live with you, I couldn't die with you, and I couldn't rise with you. She imagines themselves in heaven, and she would rather have his face than Jesus' face. Unless his face was there to put out Jesus, she wouldn't be happy. Then she envisages them facing the last judgment. They'd judge us. How? For you served heaven, you know, or sought to. I could not, because you saturated sight. And I had no more eyes for sordid excellence as paradise. And were you lost, I would be, though my name rang loudest on the heavenly fame. 
And were you saved? And I condemned to be where you were not. That self were hell to me. So we must meet apart. You there, I here, with just the door ajar that oceans are, and prayer, and that white sustenance, despair. You write in your commentary, this is a poem of torture. Mm -hmm. She chooses, or is forced to choose, despair, and he relies upon prayer. Yes. But she doesn't reject him for this difference. She accepts it. Yes, she would be glad to overlook the fact that he served heaven, but he can't overlook the fact that she could not bring herself to be a religious person. So that, yes, she doesn't criticize him for praying at all. He also happened to be married. That's true, that's true. (laughs) But poems are, of course, enacted in wish fulfillment more than anything else. You write in the commentary also about her use of the word sordid. Mm-hmm. I had no more eyes for sordid excellence as paradise. And you're referring to her blasphemous habits in that commentary. What is she doing with that word? First of all, it's wholly unexpected in the context of heaven and paradise and resurrection rising with him. None of that is ever equated with anything sordid, which is used usually in a kind of class sense. But it is to take not something opposite to heaven, we are accustomed to the conjunction of heaven and hell, but something so askance that it's a forcible tug of the head out of the line of sight of God and the angels and heaven and paradise and comparing that habitation, which has always been presented as desirable, the new habitation of the soul after death, as a squalid place that nobody would want to go to if their beloved weren't there. Helen, I'm wondering, do you identify at all with Emily Dickinson? No, it's odd that although I loved her poetry and memorized a lot of it, as I did with many other poets, the only poet I would ever say that I identified with was Wallace Stevens. And that was like meeting a brother or a sibling. It's like no other experience I have had. It's uh, revelatory to meet somebody whose mind is the grooves of whose mind are so familiar to you that you can step into the grooves of the record and say the words. And I don't know why it is. Um, He's not the greatest poet in the English language or in world poetry, but he's like me. And all I can say is that once when I was talking to Robert Lowell, he was expressing some disagreement that I didn't like Stephen's poem, Esthetique du Mal, as much as he did. And I said, well, no, it wasn't one of my favorites. And I said, why do you like it the best? And he said, because it's the most like me. And so he was finding the part of Stevens that went most in his direction. But it was a very Baudelarian poem, which is not so characteristic of Stevens. But it's that sort of feeling. You're always saying, is this person like me or not? And she is not like me because she has a more mathematical, geometrical, and precise mind than I have, as as the logic of this poem shows. But that's what you studied early on. Yes, but that was all sort of accidental. I was always in poetry and uh, was deflected for familial reasons. And And religious reasons. And religious reasons, no? Yes, but I was deflected from it not 
by religious reasons, but because I was sent to a religious school where the sciences were more neutral and one could be at peace there. Hmm. Last question, Helen Vendler. Now that you're no longer a girl of 13, but an esteemed Harvard poetry professor and critic, how has your sense of this poem changed? Well, like any other young reader, I was reading for truth. What were the real truths of life? And I hadn't found them except in poetry, hadn't found them expressed in ways I could take in. So when I first was reading poems such as this, they were scanning for me a dimension of emotional experience. And I wasn't thinking about them as poems particularly. I was thinking about them as descriptions of life. And only later, when I began to wonder how these wonderful effects were achieved, would I think, oh, what is she doing here? And then I would see the word that comes out from the page, either in letters of gold or in letters of black, in this case, something that is not expected, and begin to wonder why the choices of the poets went as they did, and why, for instance, she confined herself by and large to these brief poems and rather standard rhyme schemes. She did extraordinary things with them, but a lot of poets have wanted more elbow room than she wants. So you begin to think, why is this poet doing things this way? Why did Shakespeare want to write 154 sonnets? Why did he want to have four protagonists instead of the classic two? The choices, the choices, the choices are always there when you read them as an adult. Is it also that your knowledge and your attention to these poems has provided you a sense of distance critical distance that you wouldn't have had at 13. I certainly didn't have critical distance at 13, that's true. But there's a way in which you can always go back into a poem to re-experience it as you first saw it when you were surprised by everything that was happening from development to development. And that sense of how surprising each turn of this poem is, is what would strike anybody reading the poem for the first time how trapped she is, how much she's looking for this alternative, that alternative. Could I live with him? Could I die with him? Could I go to heaven with him? Um, that trappedness of looking in every corner of the room to find, is there any way that we can live together, seems to me to strike you when you first read the poem, no matter how young you are when you read it. The despair comes out in that trappedness all the way through. So I think you could go back down into a first response to it, I think, always. It would be too bad if you couldn't. Helen Vendler, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you for asking questions. You've been listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia. Thanks for joining us.